Hello, friends. Welcome to Emmanuel Cares, Casting Nets, and Raised with Jesus podcast. Yes, three podcasts hosting the same content, wonderful content, as we are looking through the book of Job together in an online way. You don't need a Bible sheet of any kind. Just sit back, listen to me read from the Evangelical Heritage Version, and discover together how we can find peace through life's unpredictable paths. Job 27 to 31. This is Job's final monologue. He's had a conversation with his friends, having three rounds of this uh, verbal boxing match, this poetic uh, throwdown between the three friends and Job. And now we have Job's final monologue. He's going to reassert his integrity, that is his um, blamelessness, his total package as a Christian. Total package, meaning he doesn't admit that he is uh, a perfect, but that he is a person who follows and longs and wants to follow after God's law. He wants to do what God uh, has called him to do, not because he has to, not because he believes that that merits God's favor, but because that's who he is. The new person in Job is going to really assert itself in uh, Job chapter 27 to 31, the new person of faith. But he is also uh, wondering a question of why. Why is God allowing this to happen to him? He understands that God is just, but he just doesn't understand why God is allowing all of this to happen to him when it doesn't seem like God is playing fair. We're going to see that Job's going to make a mistake. He's going to think that God is the one that is actively uh, the the agent in his life. He doesn't know that the devil is actually the one who causes all this to happen. He doesn't know that it's actually a battle in which God has put Job at the front line and said, Job is my, he's my A-team. He's my first string Christian that I'm going to wage against Satan who's going to hold on to me no matter what. And we're going to see Job hold on to God and his word, but still wanting that question of why. And it's still a well that has no answer no um, no bottom to it. So let's get to it. As we look at chapter 27, um, we will see that Job will actually be strengthened in his faith and in his character through this conversation with his friends. So after a pause, that's Zophar not saying anything. So Job gave Zophar an opportunity to speak. Now Job begins with this discourse. As God lives, he has deprived me of justice. The Almighty has made my life bitter. Yes, as long as the breath of life is still in me, as long as the breath from God is still in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will not murmur deception. May I be cursed if I ever admit that you are right. Until I die, I will never deny my integrity. I have held tight to my righteousness. I will not let it go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. May my enemy be like the wicked. May the ones who rises up against me be like the unjust. For what hope is there for a godless person when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you about the hand of God. I will not hide what the Almighty is doing. Listen, all of you who have observed this. So why do you continue to spew forth such worthless vapor? Again, we have the wind and the vapor 
uh, that picture that's tossed back and forth between Job and his friends, each accusing the other of just uh, speaking wind. So now he is talking about his friends spewing forth worthless vapor because they are not acknowledging what the Lord is doing. And we'll, we'll go from this in verse 13. Let's read. This is the allotment a wicked man receives from God, the inheritance that tyrants receive from the Almighty. Although his children are many, they are sent to the sword. His offspring will not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive will be buried by a plague. They will be buried, and their wives, widows, will not weep. Though the wicked man piles up silver like dust, and he accumulates clothing like mounds of clay, the righteous will wear what he has accumulated, and the innocent will divide his silver. He has built his house, and it will be like a moth's cocoon, like a shack like a watchman has built, put up. He goes to bed as a rich man, but his wealth does not remain. He opens his eyes, and it is all gone. Terrors sweep over him like floodwaters. At night a strong wind carries him away. The east wind lifts him up, and off he goes. It blows him away from his place. It hurls itself at him, and it does not spare him. He flees from its power as fast as he can. He mockingly claps his hands at him and drives him from his place with hissing. The words of Job that we have here today remind us a lot of what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Job is looking at the big picture. He is seeing that though the wicked are thriving here in this world, in the end, in the end, it is all for the believers. The believers will have all of this blessing and joy. Uh, this is a great reminder for us as well as we think about um, what's happening in our world. And we we like God to be uh, happening in the here and the now like Job's friends do. Like you would do something bad, then God immediately punishes you right away with something bad instead of looking big picture. And one of the themes we're going to catch in Job chapter 28, I'm getting ahead of myself, is how Job's going to acknowledge that it seems like the wicked people are doing just fine. In fact, it, it, that they're prospering, but God knows what's going to happen at the end, and Job knows what's going to happen at the end. That even though um, they seem to be doing well, eventually they'll be carried away. The wind will take them off. It, it's the idea of the the final judgment. They'll be carried off to to hell, essentially, and the believers will have everything that remains. We'll have a new heaven and a new earth. This is the place where they get to dwell. Like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That moves us to chapter 28. Uh, in chapter 28, Job is going to uh, eloquently describe the accomplishments of mankind. We have learned so many things that no other creature can do. We explore so many areas that no Christian, no uh, creature can explore. We can bring forth unimagined treasures from the world, yet no person can find true wisdom through reason or experience. Where do we find true wisdom? And Job says true wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord and that acute awareness of who God is. So let's read from chapter 28. Yes, there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the ground and copper is smelted out of stone. A miner puts an end to darkness by exploring its furthest limits. 
He looks for ore in the gloom and in the deep darkness. He breaks open the mine shaft, far from where settlers live, in places no one has walked before. Far away from other people, he dangles and sways. The earth's surface produces food, but its depths are overturned as if by fire. In places where stones are sapphires and the dust is gold. No scavenging bird knows the way there, and the eyes of vultures have not seen it. The king of beasts have not set foot on it. The lion has not prowled there. The miner's hand attacks the hard rock. He overturns the roots of the mountain. He cuts tunnels into the rocks, and his eyes see every treasure. He dams up even the trickling water from the rivers, and he brings light to the earth's hidden places. But wisdom, where can it be found? Where is the place for understanding? Mankind does not know where it is kept. It is not found in the land of the living. Reason or experience is not the source of true wisdom, but it comes from God's word. A remarkable statement of faith from Job. Let's keep going. Verse 14. Mankind does not know where it is kept. I'm sorry, that was verse 13. Mankind does not know where it is kept. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep ocean says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be purchased with the best gold. And silver cannot weigh, cannot be weighed out as its price. It cannot be bought with the gold of Orphir or with the precious onks or sapphires. Gold and crystal cannot be compared to it. The finest gold jewelry cannot be substituted for it. Coral, coral and quartz are not worth mentioning, and the value of wisdom is greater than a bag of rubies. The chrysolite of Cush cannot be compared with it. It cannot be purchased even with pure gold. But what about wisdom? Where does it come from? And where is the place to find understanding? Again, he mentions all kinds of uh, precious items, uh, precious jewels, and some of these can't are hard for us to translate. I think they just had to pick a precious metal and, and use that's the translation for it. Um, because, of course... Uh, valuable minerals. Um, uh, we're not exactly sure. The Hebrew doesn't have a really good connection to our um, metal systems. However, what's the point? We can't find wisdom no matter where we search in the depths of the earth or where we go look in the experience of mankind, where we might look in our own understanding. And that's uh, going on here in verse 20. Let's read verse 20. What about wisdom? Where does it come from? And where is this place to find understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living. It is concealed from the birds of the sky. We can't find true wisdom with our own understanding, our own reason, our own pursuits, our own uh, looking for treasure in the depths of the earth. We can't find true wisdom. Verse 22. Destruction and death say, with our ears, we have only heard a rumor about it. <laughs> I kind of like that. Um, <laughs> we think of the the agencies of God's justice, um, they've only heard a rumor. We only have seen a little bits and pieces of it. We've seen this before in the previous chapters where Job talks about, yeah, you can look at what you can see about God, the attributes of God. You see it in nature, but that's only the tip of the iceberg or the, 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 the frail edges of what makes God God. God is so much bigger than what he has revealed about himself. Verse 23. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows its place, because he watches the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. He determines the weight of the wind, and he measures out the waters by volume. 
He made a decree for the rain and established a path for the roaring thunderstorm. He saw wisdom and appraised its value. He established it and also explored it. Then he said to mankind, Listen carefully. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord. As we remember from our Luther's Catechism, each one of the commandments Luther wrote down, we should fear and love God, that we do not fill in the blank. Fear, that acute awareness of who God is, the idea of a, a horse having the blinders on so that they're always focused on what's ahead ahead of them. Or if you are, if you are indeed afraid or scared, your, your senses are heightened. You can see things uh, more clearly and hear things more clearly. That's the idea of fear, that acute awareness. You are aware of God. You're not afraid of him, but you are certainly aware of who he is, what he has done, aware that this God is bigger than you, that you're answerable to him, that what you see isn't the full picture about God. He has to reveal himself in his wisdom, in his word, which is what Job's point is. Now again, Job has those beautiful words of wisdom, but he still doesn't get the answer to his question of why. He understands this is where we go. We go to the Lord to find wisdom. We go to him in order to find the answers, but what happens when he doesn't give the answers, which is Job's question. God isn't there. God doesn't have a trial where Job can ask him questions and God give him answers. God give him the reason for why. It's a build-up to uh, what's happening, what's going to happen later on in the book when God does speak to Job. Chapter 29 is what's coming up. Uh, at verse 29, we're talking about what it's like for Job in the good old days. Job's going to give a glimpse of his life in chapter 29, and we're going to really see uh, some of what made Job the great man that he that he is and that he was back then. Let's read. Job resumed his discourse. He said, Oh, how I wish I, oops. Oh, how I wish I could be as I used to be in the months gone by, in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp was shining over my head, and I walked through the darkness toward his light, when I was in my prime, and the friendly guidance of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was still with me, and my children still surrounded me, when my footsteps were washed in cream, and a rock poured out streams of oil for me, when I went out to the gatehouse of the city, and I took my customary seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. The elders rose and remained standing in my presence. The officials held back their words. They placed their hands over their mouths. The voices of the nobles fell silent. Their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. They were all in awe of Job. They were silenced that he could speak. And it wasn't that Job was like, oh, listen to me. It was just, just the fact that he had this wisdom that he talked about in the previous chapter, this wisdom from God, the fear of the Lord, this understanding of who God is. Uh, and he had that to, to give to people and also his uh, who he was as a follower of God, that he also shared that with others as well. Every ear, verse 11, every ear that heard 
what I said called me blessed. Every eye that I, what saw what I did testified on my behalf. Because I saved the poor when they cried for help, and the fatherless when they, they had no helper. The blessing of the dying rested upon me, and I made the heart of the widow happy. I dressed myself with righteousness, and it clothed me. So again, the friends accused Job with that wild accusation that Job was trampling on others in order to get to where he was because Job was rich. The assumption, Job, you're rich, therefore you got that way by mistreating uh, the fatherless and the widow and uh, the, the poor. And here Job is reminding himself and reminding his hearers that this is what it was like in the good old days, that he did help uh, the poor, that he did help those who were fatherless and the widow. Uh, beginning, continuing on verse 14. My justice clothed me like a robe and a turban. I was eyes for the blind and feet for the lame. I was father to the needy. I investigated their cases for people I did not know. I shattered the fangs of the wicked. I snatched their prey from their teeth. So I thought, I will pass away in my own nest. After multiplying my days like grains of sand, my roots will be soaked with water. The dew will settle on my branches at night. My honor will always be fresh for me, and my bow in my hand will never wear out. People listened to me eagerly. They kept silent, waiting for my advice. After I spoke, they did not keep speaking. My words fell on them gently. They waited for me the way people wait for rain. They opened their mouths the way that people wait for the spring showers. When I laughed with them, they did not believe it. In light of my face, they were never downcast. I chose the way for them, and I was seated as their head, like a king among the troops, like the one who comforts mourners. Job, thinking back on the good old days. Chapter 29 really sets us up for chapter 30. where Job references his shame in the present. So all of the good stuff we saw, the good old days in chapter 29, is going to be offset by what he has right now in chapter 30. So now we see how Job's life was. We see what Job's life was like before uh, Satan oppressed him, and now we're going to see what it's like after Satan oppressed him in chapter 30. Let's read. But those far younger than I am now laugh at me, men whose fathers I would not have allowed to serve with my sheepdogs. The strength of their hands was useless to me. Their vigor had failed. Emanciated from famine and hunger, they gnawed desert plants in the desert wasteland. They picked marsh plants among the brush, and their food was a root of broom brooches. They were driven out of the community. People shouted at them like thieves. They lived in dry stream beds, in holes among the dust and the rocks. They brayed between shrubs and they huddled under thorn bushes. Sons of fools and nameless nobodies. They were driven out of the land with whips. This reminds me of uh, internet trolls. You know, people who comment or maybe bots that comment uh, and uh, just are picking at the lives of people around them or famous people. Nothing new. Uh, Job is saying he's being attacked by people who... In previous days and in the back in the good old days, nobody would ever give them any attention. Um, they are seeking at the, at that attention. That's for sure. But nobody was giving it to them. They were nameless nobodies. But now because of the situation that he's in, 
he feels these people are now empowered uh, to speak. The trolls have now attacked him and pursued him and affect him. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. But now I am the target of their mocking songs, and my name has become proverbial as a term of scorn. They despise me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. God has unhooked my bowstring, and he has afflicted me. So they throw off all restraint in my presence. Here, uh, just to take a break, Job has made a miscommunication. A uh, He made a leap. God allowed something to happen, but that does not mean that God is an active participant in what has happened. He has said, God has unhooked my bowstring. Yes, uh, God has allowed this to happen, but that's not the same as God wanting it to happen, nor is it the same as God uh, doing this according to his justice on Job. Perhaps God is doing this because his justice is on Satan and the devil. That's the same person, but you you understand what I'm saying? This is an internal contest between God and the devil, where God is showing the devil, my way's better. Here, let me show you exhibit A. Let me show you the first string of my followers, and they will show you that my way is right, that I my way is just. Um, and I will allow bad things to happen to him, but he still will hold on to me. Job is still holding on to God but he misunderstands why the events are happening to him. He does not have the answer for why. He uh, inserts that God is doing something bad to him and that God has a good reason or a reason for doing so, and that reason is elusive to Job. Job wants to know why. Uh, instead of it being just God allowing this to happen to prove a point to the devil. Verse 12. At my right hand, this rabble rises up like a mob. They trip my feet. They besiege me with their plans to destroy me. They cut off my path to escape. They try to benefit from my destruction. They need no one to help them. They pour through the breach in my wall. They roll in through the ruins. Terrors are unleashed against me. He's thinking of himself as um, a city that walls. So you think of all of the the barriers we put on, the emotional barriers we have around us as we're going out into the world and Job has been stripped of his uh, emotional defenses. He's been stripped of his psychological defenses against uh, the, the the kind of comments that people would make. Uh, he's very raw and vulnerable right now, and they are just pouring in and making him feel bad. You ever have that happen uh, to you or, or somebody that you know? When the chips are down, people just pile it on them. When their life isn't going well and they they don't have – um, the emotional control that they used to, then others just see that moment, seize that moment and pick on them. I mean, think of like a bully in a schoolyard. A kid is not having a great day and the bully just uh, takes advantage of it. The troll, the nameless nobody, as Job calls him. Verse 15. Terrors are unleashed against me. My prestige is blown away by the wind. My security has passed by like a cloud. Now my soul is being poured out within me. Days of suffering have seized me. Night pierces my bones with pain. The pain gnawing at me never stops. God tugs violently at my clothing. He chokes me like the collar of my robe. He has thrown me into the mud, and I have become like dust and ashes. Again, he's mistaking 
God's allowing something to happen that God wills it according to his justice. I cry to you for help, but you do not answer me. Whenever I stand up, you pay no attention to me. You have become cruel to me. With a strong hand, you assault me. You lift me up with the wind and it carries me away. You scatter me in the raging storm. So why do you think Job doesn't feel that God is answering him? I think Job is falling into the same mistake that his friend is and that he's looking for the outward perception, the outward things that he sees to see God answering him. Uh, perhaps it is the, this whole idea of this is before the written word is, is, is uh is written down so he doesn't have a prophet or somebody else to tell him God's word it seems like God is silent he is still and in all of those times when it seems like God is silent for the dear christian who has the bible what do we do when it feels like we are under attack by God go back to what we know job should have gone back to what he knew about God who he is and what he has done does God beat us down when um we're already down and for the count. Does he delight in evil? No, he does not. When he allows certain things to happen, it is to bring us through. And we have a, a video on the well of why, suffering in the well of why. So if you have more questions about this whole concept of what do you do when it, when we're looking for the answer to the question of why? Job, uh, makes that miscommunication, miss, misses the the line. He makes a connection there that shouldn't be made. Verse 24, Will he really stretch out his hand against a pile of ruins when the ruined man screams for help? Job is kind of going back on the past, isn't he? He kind of is, and that's a good thing, um, but not completely. He is not holding on to that completely. He is still wondering why. Didn't I weep for those who lived through hard days? Didn't my soul grieve for the needy? But when I waited for good, evil came. When I had hoped for light, darkness came. My emotions are boiling over. They are never quiet. Days of suffering confront me. I walk around darkened, but not by the sun. I stand in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother to jackals, a companion for screeching ostriches. My skin turns black and falls off and my bones burn with fever. My lyre plays only sad songs. My flute accompanies only the sound of weeping. So this is chapter 29 and 30. Reflect back on the good old days and then now the present reality. Where does Job find peace on his unpredictable path? At this moment, he's not finding it. But you and I, can, as we're reading through the book of Job, we see where you can find peace on what God has revealed already in his word. Fall back on what you know. Fall back on his word when it seems like God isn't making any sense. And that's a comfort for us. Job kind of does that, kind of not. In, in many ways, uh, the Christian is like that as well. We know the right thing. Uh, to to believe or the right thing to think, but at the same time we're a sinner and we have both of those things and how much we need uh, Jesus Christ, how much we need a Savior who saved us from ourselves, who lived a perfect life on our behalf and then also died on the cross so that we could have the assurance that heaven is ours, that our God loves us and he cares for us, that he will work all things out for our good and that he will bring us safely 
to his heavenly kingdom there in heaven or until Jesus comes again. We have all of those assurances and all of that comfort only because of Jesus and what he has revealed in his word, not because of something we have done or we don't have that comfort because of the what we can see around us. Chapter 31 also gives us more of an insight into Job and the kind of man that he was. And to me, it also gives us insight as and gives us, as we look at the people of the ancient world, we see that they have a lot of the characteristics that New Testament Christians have. Uh, and a lot of the same temptations that New Testament Christians have. In the first half of First couple of verses of 31, Job's going to face the temptation of lust. Uh, he's going to, he's going to be very frank with us and, um, open with us about his struggles with that and then also why he wants to overcome that and, and why he does what he does. Not because he has to, not because he is getting God's favor, but because that's who he is. He is God's child. He is a follower of God. This is who he is. His identity is found in the God that saved him and a God who um, is on his side. In the same way, our identity is not found in ourselves or in what we do, but I found on what God gives us, that righteousness that is ours through Jesus. So, verse 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I stare at a virgin with desires? If I did, what reward could I receive from God above? What inheritance from the Almighty on high? Job, if I could take a break, Job is acutely aware that God is watching his every move. And God is not only watching, but encouraging him to do what is right. Let's go. Let's keep going. Is not ruin the reward for the wicked and misfortune the reward for evildoers? But doesn't God see my ways? Doesn't he count my every step? Have I walked with deceit and lies? Has my foot hurried to pursuit fraud? If God weighs me on an honest scale, he will know my integrity. Honest scale, there's a key word there. Uh, he is assuming that God's going to weigh him on an honest scale, but then you can kind of tell that undertone of God isn't being fair with me. I don't understand why God is allowing this to happen to me. But the God that I know is a God who is honest, a God who uh, is watching my every move, whose standard has never changed. And this is the kind of God I want to serve. This is the God who has equipped me to walk in the walk that I need to walk. Let's keep reading verse 7. If my footsteps have slipped off the path, if my heart has pursued things desired by my eyes, if anything corrupt has stuck in my palms, then let someone else eat where I have sown. Let my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, if I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, let my wife grind for another, and let another man crouch down over her. For what would have been shameful behavior, a guilty deed worth, worthy, for that would have been shameful behavior, a guilty deed worthy of judgment. There is a fire that consumes all the way to hell, that would completely burn up all my harvest. If I have denied justice to my male servants or to my female servants in their disputes with me, then what would I do when God arises, when he comes to call me to account? How could I respond to him? Didn't he who made me in the womb also make my servant? Didn't the same God fashion us both in the womb? Isn't this a neat account of how Job 
even though he's living in a society where there are uh, servants and slaves even, he is not racist or prejudiced. He does not have a stereotype that says he is at one level and his servants are at another level. Didn't God create both of these in the womb? Isn't God going to count, call me into account as to how I treated another human being? This is a very enlightened view of Job. And maybe, perhaps, if you're looking at the, the Old Testament and you think they were a bunch of racists or a bunch of people who had very strong stereotypes thinking that they're better than other people, here we have the account of Job understanding that um, there's different stations in life, sure, but that doesn't mean any difference in importance, and it doesn't mean that people people are more or less important based on those stations. Verse 16, If I have withheld from the poor what they desired, if I have darkened the eyes of the widow, if I have eaten my food all by myself and have not shared it with the fatherless, no, from the time of my youth the fatherless child grew up with me, and I was like a father to him. From the womb of my mother I guided the widow, if I saw anyone perishing from lack of clothing, if the needy had nothing to wear, if his very body blessed me, as he was warmed by the wool from my sheep, if I raised my hand against a fatherless child because I had influence in the court of the city gate, then let my shoulder be knocked out of its socket, and let my upper arm be broken. Now doom from God terrifies me, and I cannot endure his majesty. Again, Job isn't going to mistreat those. In fact, he takes, um, I want to say pride, but that, that, that's not the right word, finds purpose and fulfillment in helping those who need help, um, providing clothing to those who don't have clothes. The, the wolf from his sheep is going to clothe someone else. Um, the, the fruit of his labor helps someone else. A very enlightened view, a very a New Testament view where Jesus and Jesus talks about if uh, 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 turning the other cheek, if someone asks for your your tunic, give them your cloak as well. That kind of that kind of language, or John the Baptist talking about that as well, where the Christian is there for their neighbor and to help and to serve them. That's important for us to realize as Christians because our job in this world is to help our neighbor not vote a particular way. So oftentimes we think uh, our cause as Christianity is is um is is somehow held by those in political office. I I think of that in terms of abortion where we're looking at well we have to vote a certain way in order for certain laws to be passed or certain senators to pass certain judges that would over eventually overturn Roe v. Wade. Dear Christian, what are we here for? We are here to help those in need. If there are those around us who need our help, we should be helping them. There is great joy and purpose and fulfillment in using what we have earned to help our neighbor. Verse 24. If I had placed my confidence in gold, if I had said to pure gold, you are my security, if I rejoiced because I was so rich and because my hand had obtained so much, if I saw the shining sun and the moon moving in its splendor, if my heart was gullible enough to worship them in secret, if I had kissed my hand to honor them, then I would have made me guilty and deserving of judgment, for I would have denied 
God above. Again, we have very much the new person in Job as being revealed from the pages of Scripture where he would not want to worship a, a false god, not either in open idolatry or in secret idolatry, what, not bowing down to some graven image of gold, nor looking at gold or money as the source of his security. Verse 29, If I rejoiced at the misfortune of someone who hates me, or I was thrilled because trouble caught up with him, but no, I have not savored sin by asking for a curse on his life. Did the men of my tent ever have to say, that there was someone who had not been filled with meat from Job. No stranger ever had spent the night outside. I have opened my door to the traveler. Job is talking about a schadenfreude, um, finding happiness in another person's misery, especially the misery of those who are of a different opinion of you or who are against you in some way. And Job says, that's not me. I'm always someone who is generous, even to those who oppose me. Verse 33, if I had covered up my sin like Adam, if I had hidden my guilt in my heart because I was frightened of the crowd and the contempt of the clans filled me with terror so that I was silent and did not go out of a door, oh, how I'd wish I had someone to listen to me. Look, here is my seal on my testimony. Let the Almighty answer me. Let me see the written indictment from my accuser. I would lift it up on my shoulder. I would place it on my head as a crown. I would account to him for every single step. I would approach him like a chief of a tribe. Job wants God to um, point out why he had done something wrong. And Job says, if I've done something wrong, I will wear it proudly like a crown on my head. I would lift it up on my shoulders for all to see. He's not afraid to be called out uh, or having a sin identified. I think that's one of the neat traits of someone who is above reproach, is if someone is going to accuse them that they have lived their life not just in public but also in secret in such a way that they'll say to others, just come on, bring it out. If I've done something wrong, tell me. And, and I will admit it, I will... That embarrassment is is open for all to see because it's not about me. It's about the righteousness that I've been given through God, through the one that I serve. If right Here is Job being very New Testament-y, a, a New Testament Christian, which says it's not about me, it's about Christ. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says. It's not about us or our the way that we live our lives, but about Christ who lived his life for us. His righteousness is the one, the righteousness we wear. He is the reason why we want to live for him, why we get to live for him, and why we want to follow him, why we want to be uh, loving toward our neighbor. Not because it gets us anything, not because we have to, but because that's who we are, and that new creation that is ours in Christ. We're going to close out the chapter Uh, Job's going to talk about the soil. He says in verse 38, If my soil cries out against me and its furrows weep because of me, if I have consumed its wealth without paying for it, if I have caused the death of its owners, then let a thorn bush grow up instead of wheat and stink weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are concluded. 
So not only is Job looking at his own life, but how the things that he has, his own life and his morality and and how he treated others, how he treats his servants, how he looks at women, how he treats the fatherless and the widow, those who were uh, had uh, nothing to offer him, and how he says, I will treat those who have nothing to offer me and 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 be a giver to those who have nothing to offer me. Not only all of that, he says, look at how I have managed uh, what God has given me, the land. If the land is going to accuse me and say, you've, haven't taken care of me well, that you haven't done your um, work of conservation to make sure that the soil isn't depleted of its nutrients and so on. What marvelous words of Job to remind us of not only does God call us in, in our character and how we treat ourselves and not just where people can see, but also where people can't see, but also how we manage what God has put in front of us. Job comes through with flying colors. His fruits of faith here are really something to marvel at and to model. But that only goes so far because Job still wants to know why. We think of how neat the character of Job is doesn't even compare to the character of Jesus Christ. Not only was Jesus righteous inside and out in public and in private, but Jesus was righteous day in, day out, 100% of the time, never once uh, questioning why until he gets to the cross. Until Jesus is forsaken by God and that relationship between God the Father, which had been so tight, is now so adversarial. Jesus can't perceive what, why, why God would do that to himself. The father who had always been by his side, now the father is against him. Um, such, such deep and profound words of Jesus from the cross. But the rest of his life, his perfection is given to us as a gift. We are righteous and perfect. If we struggle with any of the things that Job clearly didn't struggle with, we have Jesus to cover that up. If we struggle with the same questions that Job struggled with, we have Jesus to cover it up. We have Jesus who lived a perfect life for us, and we have his word to fall back on. How do we know that God loves us and that he cares for us and that he's going to fulfill his promises? Look to his revealed word. Let's pray. Lord God, so many times we are perplexed by what we see around us um, and we don't know why things are happening to us. Lead us to go back to your word, which tells us who you are and what you have done. Lead us to go back to your word, which reminds us that you are a loving God who is watching out for us, that you will walk us through no matter what valley, valley we happen to go through that you will do this because of Jesus and not because <laughs> we're so good or that we deserve it. Help us, Lord Jesus. Give us strength to live a, a moral and ethical life inside and out, in public and in private, how we manage ourselves, our mind, our bodies, our possessions, the things that you have given us to manage. Move us to do so because we are your children. Move us to live a life that is an example for others that others would see you and not us, that they would see 
your righteousness and not our righteousness, that they would see you as their Savior and not anything or anyone else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next time. We'll be talking about a friend, a new friend emerges, Elihu, chapters 32 to 37. Until then, be in God's word and find peace and an unpredictable path in that word.